When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Four, three, of the podcast. We, America. It's Thursday, September 2nd, 2021, people. We got ourselves some college football to talk about, baby. That is right. Week one is upon us. Loaded show. Couple quick announcements before we get to today's show. First of all, this is officially. The last week that you are only going to have two episodes of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, we will go back to three episodes next week following the holiday. It's going to be a little bit of a weird schedule with uh, probably won't drop the first episode until Tuesday, but we'll figure it all out. Back to three episodes a week next week with an incredible, a mega, mega, mega guest coming Friday. You do not want to miss that. I already recorded, let me just say, one of the five most prominent coaches in college basketball will join me next Friday. Uh, Also, So I should mention as an announcement, uh, the college football gambling podcast that I told you about did launch uh, college football betting with Aaron Torres. First episode dropped on Wednesday, and I bring it up to say a couple things. One, if you're not subscribed, go ahead and listen. Two, what I am going to do is give you a little bit of a teaser on this feed on Friday. So in addition to today's Thursday Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, I will give you the first episode of the College Football Betting Podcast on this feed on Friday. You will have an extra episode of the Aaron Torres Podcast, which is just basically the college football betting show that I will be doing. I encourage you to go find it, go subscribe. It is pinned to the top of my profile uh, there on Twitter, but a but lot of exciting stuff ahead. But let's Let's get to today's show because there is a lot to get to. One, I do want to quickly wrap on the Bishop Sycamore story. Crazy story. So many details that have emerged since my last episode. Also, we are getting in week one college football, baby. It starts on Thursday with Ohio State, Michigan, Ohio State, Michigan, Ohio State, Minnesota, Miami, Alabama on Saturday, along with Clemson, Georgia, UCLA, LSU, etc. We will talk about all the big games. And then just a really, really, really great guest, okay? So Joshua Perry works for the Big Ten Network, but he played for Ohio State's 2014 National Championship team. Crazy year. That was the year that Braxton Miller got hurt going into the season. Then JT Barrett gets hurt. Then JT Barrett Barrett takes over. He gets hurt. Cardale Jones takes over and leads them to a national championship. He himself has a new podcast series out going through that 2014 season. He talks a lot about 
that season. Uh, and also just, again, uh, just being at Ohio State, Urban Meyer, is it going to work in the NFL, all that stuff. So great interview. I'll come back on the back end, a couple quick news and notes, and we'll get you out of here. Uh, again, this is the last episode of the Aratora Sports Podcast this week, but the College Football Betting Podcast is available on my feed, and it will be available on this feed on Friday. I encourage you to go listen. With that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And I'll be honest, I don't even know if it's the topic of the day at this point, uh, but it is such a fascinating story. We hit on it on Monday's episode, and there has been so much that has happened since then. This is why i got to go back to three episodes a week, because so much has happened with America's favorite high school football team, Bishop Sycamore, that... You know I got to talk about it, and next week we'll have three episodes. I'll be able to get to it sooner, but I do humor me while I talk about Bishop Sycamore before we get to week one, because to me, this isn't just a story that is big in our sports world, but it's something that has now transcended into, you know, modern culture, pop culture, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, my sister, who I dearly love, she's great. I love her to death. She knows nothing about sports. When she texts me on Monday night and says, hey, have you heard about this story? You know it is a big story. So shout out to Bishop Sycamore. Uh, and I think all of you know it because I talked about it a little bit on, again, Monday's show. But it's crazy how much this story has evolved since Monday. Monday, you, you know, I kind of just referenced in passing. It looks like ESPN has gotten duped by this fake high school. And let what do you know? It becomes, as I said, maybe the biggest story in society. And frankly, it all started innocently enough. I mean, my team over at Aaron Torres Online was kind of one of the first people to really find this story and uncover this story. But basically, we all know what happened. Over the course of last weekend, ESPN put on a bunch of high school games. Uh, I think that's one thing that ESPN actually does really well. I know we criticize them for a lot. But obviously, this coming weekend is about college football. Next weekend is about the NFL. But in the week preceding week one in college football, which is obviously last weekend, ESPN puts on a ton of high school games. They feature the best high school teams in the country, the, the biggest recruits. And it's really kind of a cool thing that ESPN does for these small communities, small towns, small high schools, whatever. Uh, and through the years, you kind of get familiar with some of the bigger programs in high school football. IMG Academy in Florida, Bishop Gorman in Nevada is usually on there. Duncanville, Texas is usually on there. Uh, Modern Day in California is usually on there. And on Sunday, they have this game, and it's Bishop Sycamore versus IMG. Okay, well, we've heard of IMG. Know a lot about IMG. Nobody really knows much about Bishop Sycamore. And as it turns out, that included the, the, the uh, not people on social media that live in Ohio. This was a school that is supposedly based out of Columbus. And even the broadcasters on the game admit, like, we'll be honest. We did a ton of research. This school told us that they had Power 5 FBS players, players that are being recruited by major Power 5 schools. Our database does not confirm that. We cannot figure out how this team is on our airwaves. Um, and then by the end of the game, it was such a blowout, and Bishop uh, Sycamore doesn't have enough players, and guys are getting hurt. And all of a sudden, they even said point blank, we're afraid for the safety of these players. And so it's a crazy story because you sit back and you say, wait a second now, how can a school that ESPN's own college football recruiting experts know nothing about, how did they make it on TV? And so it becomes this insane story. It blows up. Uh, and we've seen the trickle-down effects really over the last two, three, four days. First of all, ESPN, we know what happened. Monday released a statement apologizing for the situation. 
they basically threw Paragon Sports, which is basically the marketing firm that sets up all these games. They basically threw Paragon Sports under the bus, basically saying, yeah, we leave it up to them. They make final decisions. They're the ones that signed off on this, and we'll make sure that this never happens again. Uh, First of all, let me say, yeah, I hope so. Uh, Paragon Sports, I don't mean to crush you because I think ESPN is to blame here as well, but I love the idea that this will never happen again. Oh, so you mean that in unaccredited high school that nobody in Ohio knows nothing about with players that are not being recruited when they say they are by a coaching staff that we'll get into in a minute that uh, let's just say has a little nefarious background. Oh, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen again. I feel like that should be the baseline. I don't feel like that should be a promise. I feel like it should be assumed. Oh, we're not going to put on fake high schools that aren't accredited with 22 and 23-year-old players on and again. Thanks for the heads up, ESPN. We appreciate it. Beyond that, as that statement comes out, again, Monday, Tuesday, more and more information comes out about the high school. First of all, the Columbus Dispatch did an incredible story on what this high school may or may not be. First of all, it's not accredited with the city of Columbus where it claims to be. It is not accredited with the state of Ohio. Um, Basically, the school has a P.O. box as a mailing address. They basically work out of a a workout facility, like a 24-hour fitness is basically their home base. You start to read stories that uh, there is a practice field that they show up to like once or twice a month to practice. And so again, absolute insanity. You want me to keep going? How about I keep going? Because then we find out about the coach who may or may not have a criminal record. And when I say may or may not, he does. I don't know all the details. I don't want to accuse him of something. But this is a guy that has been in trouble with the law before who, again, convinced ESPN and their marketing partners to put his high school football team on their airwave Sunday. I know I'm screaming. I cannot express how insane this story is. You put out a fake high school. How did you get duped, ESPN? How about the players? You're probably asking, what kind of kid would want to come play for a school like this? And we'll get to the kids uh, in a minute because I do generally feel bad for them. But the stories are insane because a lot of them, frankly, aren't even high school players. Essentially, they're all it's basically last chance you if last chance you was in high school but wasn't involved with high school kids because you have a bunch of kids that have graduated high school two, three, four years before. Uh, My buddy Nick Coffey actually found a recruiting profile of one of the players who played for Bishop Sycamore on Sunday against IMG Academy. Uh, Yeah, he was in junior college last year. And so you have a coach with an arrest record at a school that is based out of a 24-hour fitness essentially And you got a bunch of players that aren't even in high school. Uh, In terms of classes, nobody can really explain where they're taking classes or how they're taking classes or who is teaching them. Um, And it's, it's just insanity. On top of that, we find out that, again, there's some additional legal things that may be coming up. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the team had some unpaid bills, some very big unpaid bills around town. The most recent one coming uh, late in the week when we find out that they were in Canton to play this game on national TV and the coach never paid the hotel. So, again, it's crazy and the fallout has been insane. Just in terms of my overall reactions, I mean, I I think my reactions are like yours. I really only have one or two, and it's really this. First of all, this is one of the craziest stories I've ever seen, bar none, right? We say this all the time. Oh, this is so crazy. That is so crazy. I can't believe. No, this is insanity. 
Not that a fake high school exists because you hang around high school sports long enough, you realize this actually happens more than you think. As somebody who covers college hoops as much, if not more than college football, I can tell you college basketball is filled with kind of these fly-by-night schools and nobody really knows who's running it and where the kids are taking classes. And, you know, I've heard horror stories for years. I mean, dating back 10, 15 years, and it's only getting worse as the money in amateur athletics gets bigger. Um, But it's one thing to run a fake high school. It's quite another to get that fake high school onto ESPN's airwaves. And I hate to keep belaboring the point, but that is the crazy part about this. Not that this high school doesn't really exist. Not that these players aren't even of high school age and we don't know where this coach came from and all that stuff. But the fact that they got on ESPN and no one can really give a good explanation. That's the craziest part. Now, there were stories that came out over the past week or so that, uh, you know, that, that, that over the last two or three weeks, uh, ESPN tried to get on conference calls with the coaches and the coaches had to cancel at the last minute and they didn't really give updated rosters and all that stuff. It's clear that ESPN got duped. And the crazy part is not that this school exists, but that ESPN somehow put them on their airwaves. Beyond that, I'll just say this. I actually do feel a little bit bad for the kids. One, it's clear that at best, this coach of this program, who, by the way, got fired. I thought that was very interesting because I don't know how you fire somebody from a fake school. If the school doesn't exist, then that means the principal and the AD don't exist, which means it's hard to fire the coach. I've also heard conflicting things about if the AD is actually the head coach. But anyway, the coach was allegedly fired. But not only did this coach in the administration dupe ESPN, they duped the kids too. And that's what I feel most bad about. It's clear that all of these kids, they just want to play football. They just want an opportunity. They were just hoping to use this school as an opportunity to get a potential Division I scholarship. Now, I'll tell you straight up, uh, I don't know how you're going to get into school when you have the Bishop Sycamore uh, uh, you know, diploma made out of uh, string cheese and, and, and duct tape and, and rubber cement. I don't know, I don't know if that's going to fly at the NCAA Clearinghouse. But at the same time, these kids are kids, man. They just want an opportunity. And yes, some of them are 19, 20, 21, but at the same time, it was clear that all of them in some way, shape, or form, whether it's because they come from a bad background, they simply weren't good enough, a lot of them because of COVID had their senior years of high school wiped out, they just want an opportunity and they thought that this school was the best chance and now it's kind of, it's kind of just gone forever basically for them all obviously every other team that was scheduled to play this team has essentially canceled uh their games because you're not bringing bishop sycamore to town and finally i would just say this um i'm fascinated to just see what happens going forward and here is why because we have not heard the last of this first of all like i said there is going to be legal issues that have to do with this high school and with the coach Um, Some of the living conditions, according to some of the former players, and yes, there were previous iterations of Bishop Sycamore, never ended up on ESPN, uh, but that the housing conditions were not good, things were promised to the players that were not kept, uh, living conditions, food, all that stuff, and then, you know, you have, and and I'm not a lawyer, and if we have any lawyers that listen to the show, and I know we have a few because some of you have reached out to me, um, you know, if there's any legally anything, you know, because I've heard about, you know, transporting kids across state lines and this and that. So I don't know what is coming. 
But supposedly there's a $25,000 outstanding bill to a hotel that this coach owes. There's another bill at a paintball place where they went uh, for a team bonding experience a few weeks ago that has not been paid. And so this is not the last we've heard because I think this coach is going to get in trouble and I think anybody affiliated with Bishop Sycamore is going to get in trouble. But I've said enough. I want to get to week one. But yeah, shout out Bishop Sycamore, the single craziest story I could ever remember in sports. With that said, though, let's switch gears because week one of the college football season is upon us. And as much as we love week zero, as much as we all loved crushing Scott Frost last week, I got to say, we have a loaded week one in college football. And just credit to the people and the powers that be in college football. I know we say it every year, oh, this is the best week one that we've ever had, except for last year, of course, with COVID. This year, it really is, though. And I think it's for a few different reasons. One, we have the traditional... Uh, neutral site games that we get every year Alabama against Miami we have obviously Clemson versus Georgia games like that but then also credit to the Big Ten because we criticize the Big Ten for everything Jim Harbaugh stinks Scott Frost stinks they're slow they're boring outside of Ohio State none of them are any good it's cold it snows we criticize the Big Ten for everything and some of it I, I, I include myself in but for the Big Ten to come out with conference games to start the season I absolutely love it. And not only conference games, but good conference games to start the year. Ohio State at Minnesota Thursday night. If you're if you haven't seen the schedule yet, you don't know what you're doing tonight on Thursday, you're watching Ohio State, Minnesota. That's what you're doing. Penn State at Wisconsin, a matchup of ranked teams. Indiana at Iowa a matchup of ranked teams. And so the Big Ten just did an incredible job of getting games on the schedule that we all want to see. And that even includes last week, Nebraska and Illinois. That was supposed to be a game that was played overseas. It obviously got moved back stateside because of COVID. But we got a great Big Ten matchup in week zero of college football. And then finally, we just get a bunch of other really good games that that for different reasons end up being better than we were anticipating. UCLA, LSU is going to be awesome because LSU wasn't quite as good as we thought they would be last year, and UCLA might be a little bit better than we thought this year. Louisiana-Texas is interesting because Louisiana's really good. Texas is with a first-year head coach. Uh, Ole Miss-Louisville on Labor Day night. Ole Miss is must-watch TV, man. You talk about one of the two, three, four most watchable teams in college football. Ole Miss is it. Obviously, Sunday night we have Notre Dame and Florida State. So with that said, I do want to get into some of these games and just talk about them. And as I mentioned a minute ago, the gambling show will be on your feed on Friday. So we'll break these games down even further. The gambling show, you'll learn really quickly. It's really technical. There's a lot of numbers. But as I've said all along, I want you to be the smartest gambler that you can possibly be, which is what that show is for. This show is more of a traditional, this is what I'm looking for. This is I'm going to break it down, all that kind of stuff. I do want to start Thursday. Again, if you haven't seen the schedule, Thursday night, your butt's going to be on the couch. Couch, cancel the plans, order a pizza, grab a beer, Ohio State at Minnesota. And this is a game that I have been fascinated by all summer long for two obvious reasons. One, Ohio State, they lose a ton off last year's team. Two, Minnesota, don't forget, was really good two years ago when 11-2 had COVID issues all throughout the program last year. Start, stop, this, that, finished 3-4 and four, but played much better down the stretch. And this one's going to be fascinating. Because when you look at this game, I think we all just think Ohio State's going to steamroll through the Big Ten. You can legitimately argue this is one of the two or three toughest games on their schedule. First of all, breaking in a brand new starting quarterback. Never started a college game. 
breaking in a brand new starting quarterback in a full house 100% capacity and never forget how much home fields impact games in college football especially a conference game especially on a Thursday night especially when fans were not in the stands at all a year ago so you have that factor and you have a factor that Ohio State I don't think they were bad last year, right? They played for a national championship, but they had major holes in their game, and Justin Fields, I think, covered a lot of them. Specifically, they were not very good against uh, in pass defense. They were 122nd nationally. Now, part of it was that they played Alabama and Clemson, and they only played, whatever, seven or eight games total, and Alabama and Clemson were two of them. When you go against Trevor Lawrence and Mac Jones, uh, your, de- your defensive backs are not necessarily going to look good, but that is a big hole coming into this year. And I think Justin Fields kind of covered and closed a lot of holes for Ohio State. And so when I look at this game, listen, I think Minnesota can be competitive. And and like anything else, some of these I'm going to look really stupid come Monday or Tuesday, and some of them I won't. But you look at Minnesota, first of all, two seasons ago when they went 11-2, and they probably had the second best quarterback in the Big Ten outside of Justin Fields. That was Tanner Morgan, 34 touchdown passes. Now, he did not play as well last year, but a lot of people did not play well last year given the circumstances. But he comes back. Minnesota has a big dominant offensive line as a matter of fact their offensive tackle how about this six foot nine I'm not making this up 380 pounds and if you see this guy he looks he doesn't look like he, he looks like he's probably about 310 he's just jacked and so I think Minnesota what they're going to want to do take the air out of the football run the clock run the football and try to keep Ohio State on their toes they're breaking in a lot of new players they're breaking in a new starting quarterback I do think Ohio State wins but when I look at this game I think Minnesota keeps it close Let's move to Saturday. I'm going to go kind of all over the place out of order because I want to get to the games that I deem to be the biggest and most important to start. So there's none bigger than Clemson, Georgia. And if you've listened to this podcast the last two, three months, you know that your boy likes Georgia going into this year. So you'll probably be surprised to know that I actually like Clemson in this game. And you're probably sitting there saying, well, Torres, how can you like Georgia? You picked them to win the national championship. Well, first of all, teams lose games and win the national championship all the time. And I just don't, you know, it was a very Georgia-like offseason because everything that basically could go wrong did in the lead up to this mega showdown to open the season. Their best uh, wide receiver, George Pickens, got hurt in spring practice. He is out for the year. Beyond him, their best tight end, Darnell Washington, got hurt a few weeks ago. He is not expected to play in this game. Even if he does, he's clearly not going to be at 100%. Another elite wide receiver, Eric Gilbert, transferred from LSU. He's been all over the place, was at LSU, left, came back, went to Florida, never enrolled at Florida, but he announced he was going to transfer there, ends up at Georgia. He has left the team. He's not going to play. Tyke Smith, one of the best cover corners, will not play Saturday. I just think it's too many guys to lose against a really good Clemson team and especially a good Clemson defense. And and, and I talk about it a little bit on the college football podcast, um, but I think for all of the talk about Clemson losing Trevor Lawrence, losing Travis Etienne, what does it mean? 
Clemson returns everybody on defense. I mean, it is bananas how much they return on defense. Ten starters back off of a really good defense where I think they're going to have one of the best defenses in college football last year, this year. Now, last year in the playoff, they got destroyed by Ohio State. But Ohio State has maybe uh, – they have the best wide receiver group in the country. Uh, P.J. Flex said he thought it was the best wide receiver group he has ever seen. I don't think that's an exaggeration. And Georgia, as good as they are, they don't have those guys that can burn you deep the way that Ohio State did in the college football playoff. So I think this game gets played between the tackles in the box. And with Georgia losing all their marquee skill position guys, I just don't like them in that kind of game. I do think Clemson wins. I think it's something like 28 to 10, something like that. I do like the under in this game. But I'll take it a step further. What's especially fascinating is the idea that uh, what is at stake for the loser, okay? What is at stake for the loser? Because with Georgia, look, we all know that you can still get to the playoff from the SEC with one loss. We all understand that. But it does kind of change the, the paradigm and the math and the calculus if they lose this game. If they lose this game, they basically have to run the table from here. They cannot avoid a slip-up. And I will say, I do think with their schedule, it's possible. They don't play Texas A&M. They don't play LSU. They don't play Alabama. They don't play Ole Miss during the regular season. And so the opportunity for them to make a run, even if they lose this game, is there. But again, they'll have to get to the SEC championship game and beat an LSU, beat an Alabama, likely beat a Texas A&M. And will they be able to do it? I think for Clemson, it's the exact same deal where you look at this game for Clemson and when if they lose this game, they don't have another ranked team on the regular season schedule the rest of the year. Now, they may play Miami. They may play North Carolina in the ACC championship game. But if they lose this game, it is going to be really hard for them to make the argument around the college football playoff that if there are other one loss teams besides them, that they should get in above them. Think about it like this. Imagine, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, imagine if Georgia wins this game, Georgia beats Clemson. Now, I am picking Clemson, but imagine if Georgia wins this game. Georgia goes undefeated, they go to the SEC championship game, they lose to Alabama. Alabama's in the playoff. Do you take Georgia over Clemson? Because I think you got to take Georgia over Clemson if they both have one loss and Georgia wins head-to-head. So it's a fascinating concept. I do like Clemson. I am not quite as high on Clemson this year, but I like them in this game. I think they get a good advantage in terms of when they're getting Georgia. They have a very easy schedule kind of going forward. Beyond that, let's stay on Saturday. Really fascinating matchup. Early Saturday, noon kickoff on Fox, Penn State at Wisconsin. And you look at Penn State, I kind of think Penn State, I think the bloom is a little bit off the James Franklin Rose. And what's interesting is, and I think two things are fair. I think it's kind of unfair for me to say that because he was a coach that that can legitimately blame COVID on his team's performance. This was a guy that coming into last year, he went 11 in, in, in his previous four years coming into last year. 11 and 3, 11 and 2, 9 and 4, 11 and 2 in the previous four years before last year. They go 4 and 5 last year. And to their credit, they did win their final four games of the regular season. But if you look at who they beat, it was Michigan who stunk, Michigan State who stunk, uh, Illinois who stunk, and Rutgers who stunk. And so I'm not sold that because they won four games in a row to end the year that they somehow magically figured it out. Because here's the bottom line. They got destroyed by Ohio State. They got destroyed by Iowa. They lost to a bad Maryland team. And so when I look at this team, I don't know that they're going to be much better this year. They bring back the same quarterback, Sean Clifford, who has not been very good in his time at Penn State. 
60% completion percentage last year, 59% completion percentage the year before. And the thing with Wisconsin that is very important to note, Wisconsin has one of the top 10 defenses in college football each of the last two seasons, scoring defense, total defense. The offense wasn't very good last year, but I don't know how much I blame it on Wisconsin. I know I just said that Penn State doesn't get a pass because of COVID last year. I think Wisconsin kind of does. They were dominant in their first game of the season. From there, uh, they go on and have co- have a COVID outbreak. They never really get into a rhythm from there. And so when I look at Wisconsin, I, to me, they are a team that is more of a wash last year than Penn State because of COVID. It's also worth noting, home field advantage, Camp Randall, full stadium. I do like Wisconsin in this game. Let's keep moving on. Let's keep moving on Saturday. Little Alabama-Miami, no big deal. Just two of the most successful programs of the last 30 years. I mean, Alabama's won a bunch of national championships. I don't think people realize Miami has uh, five national championships in my lifetime. So we spent all this time talking about, you know, these programs like Michigan and uh, Texas. Texas has one national championship in my lifetime, and it was when they had the best player in college football, Vince Young. Uh, Miami has five national championships in my lifetime. Goes without saying, Uh, This is not that kind of Miami team, though. First of all, in terms of Alabama, again, I I think there's a little Trevor Lawrence syndrome here where everybody is so focused on the loss of Mac Jones to the NFL. First of all, never forget, Bryce Young almost beat out Mac Jones last year, and there was talk and belief within Alabama circles that Mac Jones was eventually going to have to give up that job because Bryce Young was just too darn good. Also worth noting, when it comes to Alabama, there is obviously uh, a lot of talk about what they've lost. My buddy Ryan Fowler brought up two interesting points to me. One, he has been at practice. Ryan Fowler, for people who don't know, he has been on this show. He hosts a radio show down in Tuscaloosa. Ryan Fowler said this might be Alabama's most talented group, like one through 60, like the guys that are actually going to be on the field that he has ever seen in Alabama. Not to say that the high-end talent is as good as previous years, but that one through 60, the depth is there. And what's especially important to note is that the defense is really good. Again, we spend so much time thinking about and talking about um, you know, losing Mac Jones, losing Najee Harris, losing Devontae Smith. Alabama returns eight starters off of a defense that last season was the number one scoring defense in the SEC. They gave up the fewest points in the SEC, and that was with Notre Dame, Ohio State on the schedule in addition to a full SEC schedule. So this could be the best defense that Nick Saban has had in a while. And I like, again, I said earlier with Clemson, I like when Clemson is meeting Georgia on the calendar. I like where Alabama is getting Miami here because, and this is no disrespect to De'Eric King, but De'Eric King, Miami's starting quarterback, let's never forget, this guy tore his ACL in the final game of last year. Now, to his credit, he has gotten back. I am so happy to see him back on the field, but let's be realistic. Let's call a spade a spade, and let's readily admit that coming back from a torn ACL game, what, you don't want to be playing Alabama. And so when I look at him, I look at the fact that, by the way, in his one signature game last year against Clemson, the biggest game of the season, he went 12-28, and 28, zero touchdowns, two interceptions. I think Miami is just one of those second-tier teams that is really good by the modern college football standard, but is still leaps and bounds, not even close to the top of the sport, right? We have the top of the sport, which I believe is Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State. 
Then I think we have three or four programs that are not very far behind in Oklahoma, Georgia, Notre Dame. Any given year, one of those teams can rise. Some people believe that Oklahoma, this is their year. I believe Georgia, this is their year. For people who have not seen it, I picked Georgia to win the national championship. But with that said, um, you know, I think there, then there's a next tier that's really good, but they're not even close to that, that second tier, right? The second tier of Georgia, Oklahoma, Notre Dame. Miami's in that group. Like, they're fine. They're not Georgia. They're not Oklahoma, and they're certainly not Clemson and Alabama. Dear King struggled against Clemson last year. And so when I look at this team, um, I just sit there and say, I just don't see it. The defense wasn't very good last year. 67th in the country in total defense. They gave up 34 points in 5 of 11 games, 34 or more points, including like 60 to North Carolina in the season finale. I think Alabama rolls here. You, you can't give Nick Saban months to prepare, but that's exactly what he has here. A couple other games I want to get to, LSU at UCLA. And it's fascinating because anybody who listens to this podcast knows I've been, I've been on that UCLA bandwagon, baby. I said, look, I thought they looked really good late last year. Should have beaten USC, could have beaten Oregon. And when I saw them... Uh, you know, when I saw that LSU was on the schedule all summer long, I was like, I kind of like LSU. I think I think UCLA can keep things close. Then we had a week zero game where UCLA played Hawaii. Everybody got on the UCLA bandwagon after they beat Hawaii. And I do think Hawaii is a pretty decent team. But, you know, to, for UCLA to be getting as much love as they did after that game, I'll be honest, I just, I think it's a little bit too much. The game to me all comes down to one thing. It will be a battle in the trenches, okay? It'll be a battle in the trenches. UCLA, they were number two in the Pac-12 in rushing last year. I think it's safe to say they did not face a single defense like LSU with the front seven that LSU has, all those big athletic future NFL guys up front. Can UCLA run the ball? That, that's what this whole game comes down to because if they can't, they are not going to win. Beyond that, from LSU's perspective, I think what it comes down to, how improved is this defense? We forget last year their defense was historically bad. They were one of the worst pass defenses in the country. They were, had, gave up more yards and more points than just about anybody in the country. They were awful. Bo Pelini is fired. So I just want to see. This is one of those games. If I was in Vegas, uh, I would not be putting any money down on it. But with that said, uh, going to be a fun one to watch. Speaking of fun, speaking of interesting, Louisiana against Texas. You just talk about a fascinating game with fascinating stakes. This is this is it right here. So Louisiana for people who do not know really good. They went 10 and 1 last year, 11 and 3 the year before, and they return everybody. They're one of those programs like Phil Steele said the other day because of COVID, a bunch of seniors that were going to graduate decided to come back for another year and they just have an absolutely loaded team heading into 2021 this 2021 season. Um, specifically what's fascinating to me they are facing a Texas team with Steve Sarkeesian that we all know wants to run the ball or excuse me to pass the ball that's what Steve Sarkeesian does Louisiana had one of the best pass defenses in the country last year they held five seven opponents under 200 yards passing which is an insane stat and now they're going up against a redshirt freshman Texas starter who has never played meaningful snaps in college football I like Louisiana in this game I don't know if they pull the upset, but I think it's close. I think it's low scoring. Um, I think they force turnovers. I think they take care of the ball. They're just a really well-coached team. For people who don't know, their head coach, Billy Napier, 
is a guy, he will be at one of these big boy jobs soon. He's actually interviewed at a few places and turned down opportunities. I know he interviewed at South Carolina. Don't know if he was a candidate there. I know he interviewed at Mississippi State. Uh, he's interviewed at a few of these places, but ultimately has decided that he's going to stay at Louisiana. I do think when one of these really great jobs opens up, and I'm not implying any of them will, but if it's LSU, if it's Florida, if it's Georgia, if it's Alabama, like, like those kinds of jobs. Again, I'm not saying any of them are going to open, but if one of those opens, he will be the guy that probably is pretty close to getting the first call. But he's at Louisiana, and I think this game stays very interesting. Last one from Saturday, and there's a couple other good ones on Saturday. Houston, Texas Tech. I think Houston actually is going to win that game. I actually think the wrong team is favored there. West Virginia against Maryland. West Virginia, the number one pass defense in college football last year. Maryland, explosive pass offense with Tua's brother running the ship. Uh, other games. Iowa hosting Indiana. Two top 20 teams. Indiana, for people who forget last year, really good Barely lost at Ohio State. Uh, was one of the surprise teams in college football. And if you listen to this show, you know that your boy Torres did not believe in them basically at any point during the season. And I continued to get burned as they continued to embarrass me. They beat Penn State on opening night. They destroyed Michigan. They destroyed a bunch of other teams. And so I'll just tell you, man, like, like they were a really good team that I did not give the credit to that they deserved. Uh, in terms of this game, though, I'll also say this. Iowa is a really good football team. Iowa, I believe, was probably the second best team in the Big Ten last year by the end of the season behind Ohio State. They lost their first two games of the season by a single possession. The Iowa Hawkeyes did. They lost to Purdue and Northwestern, each by less than a touchdown. How about this? They had a lead in the fourth quarter of both of those games and lost by a combined five points. They then go on to win six straight games to close the year, crush Wisconsin, crush Penn State, beat Nebraska, on and on and on and on and on, and they return a lot this year. Uh, I will not be betting this game. I will be staying away. I do like Iowa, but Indiana burned me. The reason I, like Indi the reason I worry a little bit about Indiana this year, two real reasons why. The first one is pretty simple. Um, their starting quarterback is coming off a major knee injury. Michael Penix, he got hurt in the middle of last year, was really good, but obviously coming off a major injury, you just don't know what you're going to expect. And then from there, there's another thing that kind of intrigues me, and I talked to Phil Steele about this a little bit on the last episode, is when I look at this team, um, they are a team that forced an insane amount of turnovers last year, okay? They averaged over two interceptions per game. Now, that's obviously great. That's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But what would concern me about that if I was betting this game or, or even taking Indiana in general this season is I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think two interceptions a game is sustainable for any team over the course of the season. They just forced an insane amount of turnovers. So that's what worries me. I would take Iowa, but I'm staying away. Really quickly, let's get to Sunday. Yes, we have college football on Sunday night, Notre Dame at Florida State. And I'll tell you, this one's fascinating for a few reasons. One, Notre Dame basically loses everybody. They made the playoff last year for people who forget. Lose to Alabama in the playoff, but their quarterback, Ian Book, is gone. He's now with the New Orleans Saints. They lose most of their offensive line, their best wide receiver, and most of their defense. Problem is, Florida State's a disaster too. And I think this is crazy, right? For about four years now, we just kind of assume that Florida State's going to figure it out because they're Florida State and they'll get good and they'll know what to do. Here are their records the last four years. 2020, which was last year COVID, three and six. Okay, 
COVID, it's weird, new coach, whatever. 2019, 6 and 7. 2018, 5 and 7. 2017, 7 and 6. So over the last 4 years, they have never won more than 7 games. They are below 500 over the last four years. So the idea that they're just going to turn around, I don't buy it. I do think Notre Dame wins this game, maybe even convincingly. um, But I'm just going to stay away. I'm just curious to watch Notre Dame. But I don't think it's going to tell us much about Notre Dame if they win. This team, this Florida State team is not good. They're going to struggle. And I don't think they're going to be very good this year. Final game of the weekend. Let me just say this. Shout out Ole Miss. I love Lane Kiffin. He is so good. His teams are so dynamic. They're so fun, and they're so interesting to watch. And so they are also a team that struggles significantly on defense. It's worth noting, by the way, they, they, they averaged over 40 points per game last year in a year where they didn't have spring practice. And so you think this, def- this offense is going to slow down. I just don't see it. On the flip side, though, the defense needs to be better. They gave up about 39 points per game last year. They're playing a Louisville program that I think is kind of at a crossroads. Scott Satterfield had a great year one, eight and five. They completely fell apart last year. They had kids quitting and opting out in the middle of the season. Then in the offseason, he interviews for the South Carolina job, does the big thing where I'm coming back. And the fans are like, you just got here. Like, like you're coming off a four and seven year or whatever we are, and you want to be a pat on the back? Because you're coming back, give us a break. So I think this is going to be a fascinating game. And if Scott Satterfield gets blown out, if Louisville gets blown out in this game, we're talking big, bad news for Scott Satterfield and Louisville. I think Ole Miss wins. I will not touch this game from a gambling perspective. All right. That's a lot of coverage of week one. But we have, I mean, I'm talking six, seven marquee games that I am so fired up about for this weekend. By the way, I know I told you I was going to come back after the Joshua Perry interview, but uh, I think you got enough Torres for one episode. So with that said, uh, with that said, let's get to my interview with Joshua Perry. And and, and as a quick side story, Joshua Perry, former Ohio State player, played for the Buckeyes 2014 National Championship team. And if you don't remember that season, that was the year. It was Urban Meyer's fourth year. He's building something. He's building something. He's building something. And going into the season, they have really high expectations. Everybody's really excited. Braxton Miller is their quarterback. He goes down with a shoulder injury. They lose their second game of the year. They struggle. JT Barrett is in at quarterback. Then all of a sudden, they get on a roll. They start beating teams. They start winning. They're playing themselves into the college football playoff conversation. This was the first year of the college football playoff, by the way. And then JT Barrett gets hurt against Michigan, and Cardale Jones comes in. Cardale Jones comes in. Ohio State is ranked sixth going into the Big Ten championship game. They destroy Wisconsin. They jump from sixth to fourth. They win the Big Ten. They go to the playoff, beat Alabama. And Joshua Perry gives you a front row seat for it all. So he is hosting a new podcast series called Glory Days uh, about those uh, glory, uh, glory Days about those that 2014 Ohio State team. I highly, highly, highly encourage you to check it out. I've actually listened to episode one in terms of listening to uh, the show. It is available on all of the uh, all your podcast platforms, all that kind of stuff, and it is just it is just a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating story. Um, and he does a really good job uh, in breaking it all down. Again, the Glory Days podcast, Glory Days podcast on 
on uh, glorydayspodcast.com if you want to listen to it. Uh, Before we get out of here, one quick other announcement. As I mentioned, my college football gambling show It will be on your feed on Friday to get you ready. I also encourage you to subscribe to that show. Again, it's more of a numbers-driven, data-driven type show, but I do think you'll enjoy it. And obviously with legalized sports gambling coming uh, in so many states, uh, it is something that I know a lot of you have interest in. I should mention, by the way, we are closing a deal very soon on a sports gambling sponsor that I am so excited to talk to you guys about, and I will have more details on that hopefully next week week before we get out of here make sure you're subscribed to the Aratora sports podcast itunes podcast addict app podbean spotify tune in radio wherever you listen to podcasts make sure to rate and review the show go ahead and uh follow on social media at aaron underscore torres on twitter at aaron torres pod on instagram aaron torres podcast questions at gmail.com Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. That is all for me. I am not coming back on the back end. I know I said I would, but change of plans. We've done it. You've heard enough from Torres for one day. So with that said, let's get to Joshua Perry, Big Ten Network, former Ohio State linebacker. All right, joining me via Zoom. Really excited to have this guest on the show, uh, former Ohio State linebacker, played in the NFL, now works for the Big Ten Network. Most importantly for this interview, he is the co-host of the new podcast, Glory Days, Dreams and Nightmares, about that 2014 Ohio State National Championship team, which as I was telling you, Joshua Perry, that story of that team was wild. Uh, Josh, first episode's out. How you doing today, my man? Doing well. Uh, and it was a wild story. I mean, just it was the same thing for me. There are so many minor details that when you start to distance yourself from it, you tend to forget. And as we were doing the research and we were preparing for the shows, everything came flooding back. And it is amazing. I'm glad we got to tell the story. Well, yeah, it's really funny. Um, you know, and, and I think as we all get older, that happens. You get together on a, on a bachelor party or something. You're talking to your buddies. Everybody remembers a slightly different, uh, you know, stories from college and all that stuff. Really quickly, obviously, Ohio State, you win the championship in 2014. Correct me if I'm wrong, though, because I, I want to get into that season. But I believe, were you part of Urban Meyer's first recruiting class at Ohio State? Um, and if so, uh, you know, I don't know if you were committed before he took the job or you committed after, but you know, he's obviously the cornerstone of, of that program over the last six, seven, eight years until coach day took over. What was it like to be recruited by urban Meyer? If in fact, you know, he came into your house and all that stuff after he took the job. Yeah, it's really interesting. That's one of the stories that I tell on the podcast. I, I was a part of his first recruiting class, but I wasn't recruited by him. I was recruited by Jim Trestle's staff. I was the first commit in the 2012 class. And so Urban and I actually had a really bumpy relationship to start because he didn't really know me that well. And to be quite honest, I don't think he would have recruited me. Um, <laughs> it's not, I don't think he told me he wouldn't have recruited me um, if, if he was the head coach at the time that I was being recruited. So um, there were a lot of ups and downs there. And obviously he had some work to do with that 2012 class, which ended up finishing fifth nationally. And he was able to get some guys at the 11th hour, flipped a guy like Noah Spence. Uh, Kyle Dodson was a Wisconsin commit that he was able to get to flip. And then they had a couple other guys as well uh, who he was able to just lock in. And I was definitely an afterthought to him as he was trying to figure out what the plans were for that incoming class. Uh, and so it's part of the, the story arc there is just being able to build into a true player. 
Well, and so, so let me ask you, I mean, was it just a practice where you missed an assignment and he said, I, I should have never taken you in the first place or how much are you willing to share about what coach Meyer said about point blank telling you didn't want you to in his program? Yeah, I've been pretty candid about it. And, and I actually, I had a, a podcast I was doing myself where I interviewed him and we talked about this, but I was an early enrollee. So I was 17 years old in January of 2012. And I'm about five days into my tenure at Ohio State and Urban pulls me aside in the hallway. And he's like, I just want to let you know that if I was still coaching at Florida, I would have never recruited you. He's like, if I was the coach at the time you're being recruited, we never recruited you, you weren't fast enough, you're not tough enough, you don't pop off the tape. I don't think you can do it. And that was the end of the conversation. It was, when you asked him about it years later, was that, I'm sure there was probably some truth to it, but was that a motivational, uh, you're not in high school anymore tactic? I mean, what, what, what did he say, if he remembered? I'm sure that you're not the only one he gave that speech to, but um, what was that a motivational deal or what was the deal there? I think there was a little bit of truth to it, to be completely honest. I don't think I was the type of player that really fit his profile. I was a four-star kid coming out of Central Ohio. Obviously, I wanted to stay home but I wasn't the flashiest four-star guy that there was. And when he was rounding out that class, he was going after five-star after five-star to really finish it out. And he wanted some guys who can play. And to put context to that is we had two linebackers in my class, uh, myself included, that were committed under Trestle and Fickle. And to finish out that class, he brought in three more linebackers because he didn't think either one of us were going to play. I ended up staying. The other guy who was one of the original linebackers ended up transferring. And then actually two of the three guys that he brought in ended up transferring as well. So there was some truth to it, but I also think that he was going to make me make a decision as well about how great of a player I wanted to be and how much I wanted to be a Buckeye. Very good. Um, kind of before we get to 14, um, the year after you get there, there's basically a historic recruiting class. Ezekiel Elliott is in it. Joey Bosa is in it. You know, you can fill in the other names from there. Um, with no disrespect to the talents of yourself or, you know, anybody that was in that first class, when, when those guys showed up, was it, was it like day one, like this is a different deal? I mean, do you have any memories of, of those guys specifically showing up? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of those guys who we knew were going to be great players. You named Zeke, you named Joey Bosa. Obviously, those were two of the guys who played early on. Von Bell really came on toward the end of that year. And I can remember, actually, when Von Bell committed, uh, we were – we were practicing and Urban just gets on the phone and he's like super excited about it uh, because Von Bell is one of the guys that he really wanted. And so you had a couple of those guys and then you had some of the late bloomers in that class. Even Eli Apple was a guy who took a red shirt that ended up becoming a baller and was a first round pick. And Darren Lee was another central Ohio guy who was playing quarterback in high school, a three-star that Luke Fickle pounded the table for. And all of a sudden he becomes a first round pick. And so we knew there was going to be something special brewing there. But just the kind of the top names that you had said earlier, we knew those guys were going to be ballers from the jump. And it's crazy. And I talked about this a little bit on the podcast. Like we were waiting basically after that 2013 season for Zeke to become what he was. And up until that point, his most memorable play was when he absolutely killed a guy from Purdue covering a kickoff. Okay. And we saw every day in practice that he was just like, he practiced as hard as he played. Like, this guy's going to be great. So it was really unique kind of watching all that develop. Very good. So 14, 2014 is the year that you guys ultimately win the national championship. I think what a lot of people remember is JT Barrett getting hurt in the Michigan game, Cardale Jones coming in. But before the season, 
Braxton Miller was the guy, and then JT Barrett got hurt. And so, uh, you know, for a non-Ohio State fan listening, I, I'm sure people are probably like, I, I forgot all – like, like what was that moment in the locker room like? So I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you guys are coming off like an Orange Bowl appearance. You had a really good year the year before. Um, and you're probably – everything's building towards this 2014 season. You have this veteran quarterback, Braxton Miller, uh, elite player in the Big Ten. He gets hurt. And what was what was that like when that, when that part of it happened? Yeah, you, you, I think we got to walk it back a little bit because sure, 2013 please. was a really good year. Uh, but it, th- between 2013, 2012 and 2013, we went 24 straight games. And then we lose to Michigan State in the Big Ten Championship game. And then we lose the Orange Bowl to Clemson. And so we were in a very tenuous spot as a program. And in that loss to Clemson, Braxton hurt his shoulder. And okay. so the whole offseason, he was rehabbing. That's right. And he got back and he was looking great in training camp. Like, we're all super excited. We're like, okay, we got Braxton back. Ezekiel's about to have a breakout year. Darren Lee was coming into his own. We had Raquan McMillan coming in as a freshman playing linebacker. We knew he was going to be a really good player. Joey Bosa's developing into what he is. Our whole secondary was phenomenal where you got uh, Duran, Grant, Eli Apple, Von Bella, Tyvis Powell, all guys who played in the NFL. And so we're, we're feeling really good about ourselves. And Braxton gets hurt during a practice on the field at training camp. And at that point, it was like basically – None of us wanted to practice anymore. The coaches didn't want to coach that day anymore. We kind of just called it in. And it was like, I wouldn't say panic mode, but reality had set in that the journey was going to be a lot more difficult. And I think we all trusted JT. And we knew that JT was going to be a really strong leader because from day one, when he came in, all he did was put his head down and work. But at the same time, we're talking about Braxton Miller, two-time Silver Trophy, Big Ten Player of the Year, Now he's out of the lineup and we don't know when he's going to be back and we don't know what he's going to be when he does come back. So it was, it was crazy for us. I think uh, it it made us have a little bit of a mental shift to now some of the guys who would have been categorized as role players or some of the times where the defense felt like Braxton could bail us out if we didn't have a great game, all that stuff was done. So you lose week two to Virginia tech. Um, when did you guys, when do you feel like, or when did the guys in this podcast, Glory Days, Dreams and Nightmares, I, I know you interviewed plenty of your teammates. The podcast is now available. Um, when did you guys feel like you started to hit your stride? Because, uh, you know, you win the national championship, but you lose week two. That's the, for people who forget, that's the first year of the college football playoff. And you don't really know if, if you have one loss, what does that mean? Are we done for the year? I mean, I hate to say it, Joshua. I think there's an old tweet of mine that went pretty viral after you guys made the playoff. <laughs> um, so, like, 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 when did you guys feel like, okay, we're past Braxton, JT's in his element, we're starting to get comfortable in what we're doing here? That's a great question because the first game that we played in uh, that year was an away game in Baltimore playing against Navy, and – they have obviously that triple option offense so that, you know, defensively, I think it put us kind of behind the eight ball just in preparation for that. And we were fine defensively. It took a little bit for the offense to get started. And then we played Virginia Tech. And I think our defense wasn't ready necessarily for the spread attack. And there were some uncharacteristic things that we did, but overwhelmingly the offense had trouble with that bare front. And so everybody after that game, I think defensively, at least we, we put that one to rest pretty quickly. And coaches always talk about how it's easier to coach after a win because you can be hard on guys. Um, they're, they're, these guys were coaching us after a loss 
And to put that in perspective, it was a 24 game run. And then we lose three out of the next four games that we play in. So the coaches have to be very careful about how they want to coach us. And so we just put that one to rest. And the idea for us was we just have to get back to fundamentals and we just have to be better. Like we have to make the plays that we're supposed to make. We have to be assignment sound. And that's what we did. And I think there was this build that we had during the season to where we played uh, Michigan State at night on the road. And that was an explosive game for us. And it really proved that we could compete with the best because we were, we started off in like the top five at the beginning of the year. We dropped to like number 22 after we lost to Virginia Tech. And it was a slow build um, up to that game where I think Michigan State was number eight and we beat them. And then after that, we play, and it doesn't sound like, you know, some very intriguing games, but we play in Minnesota on the road. And that was a tough one that we had to really uh, grind to get. And uh, it was a snowy game. It was a cold game. It was just like everything about tough Big Ten football. And then we turn around and we play Indiana. And Indiana had an explosive offense, but they were not a good football team. And they were waxing us at halftime. And Jalen Marshall comes out after fumbling a punt return the week before against Minnesota and has four touchdowns that game. I think that's when we started to put things together and figure out that, all right, we got guys who are resilient and we're going to figure out ways to win football games against good teams. And uh, I, I think that's where we all started setting our sights to, we still have a chance at everything we had hoped and dreamed of at the beginning of the year. Well, that leads perfectly. You're, you're building momentum. And then JT Barrett gets hurt against Michigan. Um, what what did you guys know about Cardale? I mean, the physical gifts are unquestionable, but he just didn't have that many game reps at that point. Um, what floor is yours? Floor is yours. JT Barrett goes down against Michigan. Yeah, and that one was a tough one because the first thing in your mind is, oh man, not again. Like we literally did this at the beginning of the year. Like we are not doing this again, and we had to. And uh, obviously, it was in a rivalry game, so the emotions start to, to build in. And so our mentality is, let's finish this thing off the right way. Let's get the win against our rival, which we did. Cardale coming into the game, I think defensively, it flipped the switch for us. Not to say that we didn't trust Cardale, but when a guy hasn't played a lot of football, especially at the quarterback position, everybody else has to rise around him to make sure that he can get acclimated. Uh, but in the back of my mind, and I feel like this was kind of the tenor for a lot of guys on the team is Cardell's in the same damn meetings that JT and Braxton were in all year. He's taken reps as the two throughout the season. So he's getting reps primarily against the one defense whenever we would go into team drills. And so, you know, he's seeing the best players in America uh, every time he has to line up and practice. And so just from that, we felt like Cardell was going to be a guy who could step in there and make some plays. Did I anticipate that it was going to be 59 to nothing Cardell? go down to the Sugar Bowl and ball out Cardale, win us a national title Cardale, not at the moment, but we knew that we had a chance because this guy was talented, but also he had put in the work. I remember I was working for FS1 at that point behind the scenes and Dave Wanstead was there and he was like, this is an advantage for them. There's no tape on him. And he's like, I would be pulling up high school tape if I was, if I was the coach, <laughs> I'd be freaking out if I was Wisconsin. And I think there's, probably a TV segment somewhere of Dave Wanstead breaking down Cardale Jones high school tape uh, from that <laughs> moment in time. So another crazy element that I had forgotten, I didn't, I don't want to say I had forgotten it until I, I started preparing for this interview, but you know, you guys made the college football playoff. You win the championship again, though, people forget you guys were in sixth place in the BC, B, what, BCS college football standings 
going into the final day. And again, it was the first year of the playoff. Nobody knows how does this work? What does it mean? So take us through that 24 hours. You beat the you-know-what out of Wisconsin, but you went into that weekend at number six, um, and it ends with you guys in the playoff. Now, my opinion doesn't matter. I thought you, you guys looked the part of one of the four best teams at that point. And in hindsight, it's really interesting to kind of think about it because that's the argument we have now every year with the number four right. spot. It's not is it who has the best resume versus who looks the best versus who matches up. And it's like, but that year, nobody really knew how it worked. And by the way, you guys changed college football because the big 12 has a championship game now. And they had that. Uh, so anyway, I, I just yeah. love talking this stuff, man. So go ahead. No. And that was our deal. It's like, we don't know what the hell we got to do to really make it into the show. So let's just go out there and ball out. And that was kind of the mentality. And then as that big 10 championship game went on, and we were really putting it on Wisconsin, who uh, you got to remember, Melvin Gordon was a Heisman finalist. That That's year. right. We played in that playoff run in the Big Ten championship in the playoff run. We had two Heisman finalists and a Heisman trophy winner that we had to go up against. Um, but we were laying it on him. We're like, oh, man, this is great. This is great. But we had no idea how this thing was going to end. Like you said, we're sitting there at six. Um, and just as an aside, do, do you... <sighs> I'll, I'll ask you this question, then I'll get back to okay. the story. I'm all ears. Do, do you think the Big 12 is in a different situation right now if one of TCU or Baylor makes it in that first year? That's a great question. I, I mean, I, they've got a lot going on right now. Obviously, I think Texas, in the way that they like to yes. operate, is a big reason why that thing is falling apart. But you can just kind of see, I think that is one of the, the points where, you know, like – Maybe if they're not on the outside looking in at that point and they can garner a little bit more respect nationally, you know, things are different right now. Yeah, it's that's a really fascinating point that I hadn't considered. Um, and, you know, for people to know, it was Baylor and TCU. I, I could be wrong. Was Baylor fourth or TCU fourth? I can't remember which one was ahead of who. But I, I don't know who would have been in position to get it. But, you know, that Art Riles Baylor team, I mean, they were balling out. They were putting up points. And like you said, you know, the way that Cardale played, the way he stretched that defense against Alabama, I don't think they pull the upset, but is it out of the realm of possibility? I don't think so. They go to the, you know, and it's crazy. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that, but to answer your question, I, I still think and maybe it would have made, made made the process move quicker because Texas would have been madder faster than all these teams were <laughs> passing them. But that's a great point I hadn't thought of. No, I mean, that's, that's a good thought right there too, but um, to kind of get back to it. So we're sitting there after the game. We had done everything that we could do. Urban does not call us in for a watch party like you see most of the teams do now. And I think part of that was he wouldn't want to have to address an ESPN camera had we been on the outside looking in going to a New Year's Six Bowl game. I think he just wanted us to kind of celebrate what we had done. It was our first Big Ten championship under him and really appreciate the moment and not have to be prepared to make remarks just in case the outcome wasn't what we wanted it to be. So I was at uh, one of my teammates' apartments. So it was me and my roommate went over to a couple of guys who we played ball with. We went over to their apartment. It's right on High Street. Uh, it's like the main drag right there off of campus. And we're watching the selection show. And when the name pops up there, we went ballistic. Like we're, we're you know, tearing stuff up, we're throwing chairs, we're celebrating, pouring water on each other, all kind of dumb college stuff. And I call my parents and they're driving back 
from Indianapolis because they had spent the night. And so they're listening on Sirius radio to the selection show. And it's like, it's crazy because there was, a, I guess, a number of Buckeye fans that were driving back that morning. You can hear horns honking wow. on I-70 because people were so damn excited. Um, and so like that just really, that was a moment for us. We got together for a team meeting later on and it was just like completely flipped the switch. Like it was full metal jacket. It's time to go win a championship mode. I, I mean, I, I don't want to give away the whole, I mean, I, I've given away the whole podcast at this point. It's glory days, <laughs> dreams and nightmares. You know, anything else from that title run? Again, for people who forget, Bama was a comfortable favorite going in. I think it was the Ohio State's just happy to be there. Um, and, and I forget all the details, but you learn pretty quick in that game. And I remember where I was and what I was doing. Um, you know, these boys came to play. I think you might have gotten up early and then they came. I don't remember. But just from because like you said, once you're in, um, you got talent. I don't think people realized how much talent with, again, Zeke Elliott, Joey Bosa, Darren Lee, Eli Apple, et cetera. But you get in, you win those final two games. You beat Oregon. I think you were still an underdog against Oregon as yeah. well. Let's uh, take it away. Yeah, and um, to that point, in my tenure at Ohio State, the four years I was there with Urban, we never lost as underdogs. Um, so we embraced that mentality of, okay, well, Vegas is betting against us, and so is the rest of the world. Like, let's go prove them wrong. Um, that Alabama game, it was kind of – it was a battle – early on and our biggest thing was we were kicking field goals instead of converting touchdowns and so at one point the score was like 21 to 6 and the offense had a conversation on the sideline like we got to punch the freaking ball in um and eventually they started doing that and again it came down to a last play my guy tyvis powell who's one of my best friends intercepted the ball in the end zone and instead of taking a knee uh like a guy with high football iq and tyvis to this day swears he was right he brings it out of the end zone and he's trying to score a touchdown. I'm like, you freaking idiot. And I tell him every time I see him, I'm like, you, you really believe you were right bringing that ball out. And he says, yes, I was trying to score. Um, but we ended that game and then we're preparing for Oregon and it was a completely different style of play. And they had the Heisman Trophy quarterback that year, but they were a tempo team. They wanted to go fast. They wanted to get you tired. And we were a team that could run with them, but we were also more physical and we were like, we're going to punch you in the mouth and we're going to see if you get more bruises first or if we get tired first. Um, and in that game, offense turned the ball over sometimes. Defensively, they went down the field on us a couple of times, but we pulled it together, ended up getting the result that we wanted. It was, uh, it was so validating for us to be able to celebrate that because of all the obstacles that we had along the journey, all the times that we were doubted there. But I also, I also think it was a celebration of a roster that we knew was an elite roster and a roster truly that deserved to have that level of success because as I keep going back to but 2012 we went 12 and 0 couldn't play in a big 10 championship or a bowl game because of the infractions and that was a part of the punishment in 2013 we ran the table in the regular season and then ended up messing it up in the conference championship in the bowl game this was a group of players and a group of coaches that were ready to get some damn hardware and so we figured it out and it was awesome very good. A couple questions will get you out of here. I want to talk about this year's team. Uh, but first, just Urban Meyer. I mean, you talked a little bit about your relationship. First of all, I think I saw a story. Uh, tell the story about when you were driving around with Urban Meyer and you were afraid he was going to get pulled over by the cops. Yeah, no, it was um, that was a real interesting one. So 
I, it was like summer workouts and uh, we're just, uh, me and my uh, buddy Craig Fado, who was a walk-on linebacker, we're just like walking down the hallway and Irvin grabs us and he's like, hey, I'm getting ready to head to the spot. Uh, one of the guys from Athletes in Action wants me to watch this documentary with him. He's like, I think it'd be pretty cool if you guys came. And we kind of look and we're like, well, we're not going to tell Coach No. We really don't have anything to do. We're like, let's just go have an afternoon. And so uh, Urban's like, I'll drive. Great. So we hop in the car and he pulls out of the, the drive, uh, the parking lot and starts driving down Olentangy River Road. And, uh, you know, we hop on 315 or whatever the case is. And all the while, like, if there was a question of if the light was yellow or red, he was taking it. <laughs> it was just, you know, rolling stops the whole way through. Dude, speeding. I think there was one situation where we were going the wrong way down a one way. Oh, my And goodness. I'm like, white knuckle clenching the seat the whole time. Like, what the hell is this guy doing? And so I'm like, Urban, uh, I'm like, did you always drive like this? And he just kind of like didn't answer me. I'm like, uh, all right, so let's let's walk through this. I said, do you ever get pulled over? And he was like, yeah, I get pulled over. And I'm like, so what happens? And he's like, well, they'll be like, oh man, you're the head coach, you're Urban Meyer. And I'll be like, yeah. And the police officer will be like, oh man, you had a great season last year. And he's like, I'll be like, thanks. And then they're like, hey coach, can I get an autograph? So they're like, sign an autograph and they'll let him go. And I'm like, that's why this man is zipping down all these streets <laughs> like this. So I'm like, anytime he gets pulled over, they're just letting him go. I was so nervous. Um, and so to kind of like backtrack on that, I've, I've had stories corroborated like three times of how bad a driver he is. And Shelly Meyer, who is Urban's wife, I have a great relationship with, and I love their family to death. Uh, she won't say one way or the other what type of driver Urban is. I think that tells the story right there. What is he like on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, you hear so many stories. I mean, he had has had so much success at the college level. Curious what he does at the NFL what do you attribute it to? What is he like? How did the coach, I mean, I guess you never played under anybody else in college, but what, what do you think it is that allows him to have that immediate success as, at least at the college level? Yeah, he's, he's very intense. And I think a lot of coaches are intense people, but he has this knack and this ability to be fanatical and hyper-focused on singular things at once. And he won't let it go until it's done. Um, and I, I give the example, I'll give you two of them. So on our punt team, we were not the traditional like pro punt as they call it, where the guys are kick stepping. We were a team that was a spread punt, which you see a lot in college. And so our technique was if you had a man block, it was you step with either your, your uh, left foot first and then your right or your right foot first and your left. And if you were on the zone side, it would be a right, left, right, or a left, right, left. And we would rep just the steps 20, 30, 40 times before we would even like run a formation. Mm. And if the steps weren't right, he would bring it back down to basics until they were perfect. Every single time, that's how he liked to do it. The other thing was what we call the difference. And this came from when Urban was a guest commentator uh, for the BCS national championship in 2012 with ESPN. But he watched Alabama warm up and he said they had the best hand placement on their defensive line that he had ever seen. Always elbows tight, inside hands, thumbs up. They struck with power the whole deal. And so he went on this rampage about how we don't strike like Alabama so we can never beat Alabama. And so every day we had this period in pre-practice where we would just practice like shocking each other, just inside hands, elbows tight, thumbs up, just doing that the whole time to the point where Anthony Schlegel, who was a former Buckeye player, 
spent a little time in the NFL and was a strength coach at Ohio State, developed an apparatus where we could practice that without having wow. to do it on somebody else. And I kid you not, I just went on a tour of all the Big Ten training camps. Every single weight room in every Big Ten facility has one of those machines in there now. Like it was one of those things, but that came from Urban being a lunatic sure. about the fact that we don't do this as good as Alabama does. Um, it's it's nuts, but that's what makes him elite. Sure. It's also the thing that wears on people. Like I, I always joke around, I only had four good years at Ohio State because I couldn't have stood being there for a fifth. You know, <laughs> and, and Urban's been known to become burnout, and that's because of his personality. Everything's so intense and everything's so hyper focused. Well, I was going to ask, what do you make of the NFL stuff? Do you believe he's one of these guys that, I mean, he's, he's once, I believe even when he left Ohio state, he said at the time I could never coach in the NFL. Um, you know, I, I, I can't lose nine games. I can't, I can't do it. So we, you know, you probably watch Monday night football, like everybody else. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be a process and we know he's a great coach and we know Trevor Lawrence is a great player and it's no disrespect to the other 52 guys in that locker room, but it's going to be a, prog a process, excuse me. Yeah. I mean, you know, just watching some of the preseason games, I can just, you can look at his demeanor and tell that there are some things that he'd like to change right now. that are probably going to be a multi-year process. That offensive line obviously um, hasn't done a great job of protecting Trevor and he lost one of his other first round picks, which is a tough thing to do early on. Um, I also think that offensively, the scheme is not that of what he would necessarily prefer to run, but he's really trying to take this CEO mentality, which I think is great for him. But just from talking to him personally and having seen him a number of times since he's taken the job, physically, he looks really good. Um, mentally, when you talk to him, I think he's compartmentalized what this journey is about to be. I think the biggest thing for him is just to be able to take a deep breath and let go when he starts to get in the weeds during the year um, and understand what the process is like. It's not college where you can just recruit a few guys that are going to change your program overnight. Um, you know, you have to really build into the thing. I think he can do it if there's one guy who can take Jacksonville, which has struggled for a while now, and make it into a respectable organization that can do some special things. I think Urban's a guy. It's just a process. Last couple, we'll get you out of here. Ohio State, uh, you know, by the time people listen to this, it'll be game week. They play at Minnesota, one of many high-profile teams that have a new starting quarterback. Uh, C.J. Stroud is the guy. What did you say? I think you said you were at all 14 camps. I don't know what you were allowed to see, but I know you have sources within the program. What do you expect to see from him? And is there any – are they dropping off at all? Because we know how much talent is within that program. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and the day that we went to practice, CJ was kind of on a little bit of a load management thing, which is something that Ryan Day and Mickey Marotti and the, the strength and conditioning program have been really cognizant of for guys heading into uh, the year this year, just making sure they're not overdoing it in training camp, which I think is super smart. So I didn't get to see a ton. He was in there a little bit for team periods. Um, from what I've heard and from people that are in the know, they all think that he is the guy. Uh, he's got a phenomenal arm. He is built really well in his lower body. He's put on some weight, but he can withstand um, some of the hits that come from playing Big Ten ball and being in the pocket and having to have a strong base so you can deliver a throw when somebody's right in your face. I think the biggest thing, and this was going to be probably the knock on any of the guys who would have won the job, is that when you're a young quarterback, you tend to take things a little bit harder when they don't go well. Um, and it's just a part of being a veteran player and getting some of those calluses is, you know, you just, you, you don't worry too much. You, you just, you have a bad play and you just kind of let it go. Where the young guys, 
they kind of ride the wave a little bit more. And so I think it's going to be imperative for CJ to uh, just go in there with a clear mind and understand that he's a guy who has a job. The flip side of that, and I know this is the hardest part for Ryan and the staff at Ohio State, is they have to recruit the guys who are also in that quarterback room because every one of those guys, four scholarship guys that were really in the mix, it was three and then Quinn came, but they all have freshman eligibility, uh, which is a tough thing. And so you don't want CJ constantly looking over his shoulder uh, because you're trying to make sure those guys are engaged, but you also don't want to lose the other guys in the room. And I'm very curious to see how that plays out. But overall, I'm excited. I think Ohio State's offense is going to be as explosive as we've seen. That's a fascinating point I hadn't considered. Last one real quick. I know you got to run. Um, is there anybody else in the league? Because, you know, we we have these conversations every time this year with Clemson in the ACC, Oklahoma in the Big 12, Ohio State in the Big 10, where, um, you know, you look at an Ohio State and you say, well, Justin Justin Fields left, you know, a couple, uh, you know, a couple other guys leave as well. This is the year if you're going to get Ohio State. But not only does Ohio State have to take a step back, somebody else has to take a step up. Is there anyone that you really feel can actually do that this year? Yeah, it's interesting because you look at the the uh, the Big Ten East, and I think Penn State, um, they have some athletes out there. I like their defense from the standpoint of their, their quick up front. They've got a good linebacker core. Their secondary is long. And I think they're one of the few teams in the country, let alone in the Big Ten, that has the speed to match Ohio State. Um, and I'm not saying it's it's pound for pound they're there speed wise, but they can keep up with Ohio State. The biggest question becomes you have a quarterback who struggled last year who's now on his third coordinator. Mm. And I made a comment and a lot of Penn State fans like went crazy over it. And I said, I don't think that Sean Clifford looks the way that I expected him to. And they're like, oh, man, he sucks. He's a, a third year starter. This is a bad situation. I said, no, no, no. You have to understand when it comes to quarterbacks, that's the last position where you want a guy to have three different coaches and three different coordinators in three years, because now that's a, a, a new concept they have to learn. It's new terminology they have to learn. It's a new play calling rhythm that they have to learn. And so that'll be the biggest part for them is can they figure out the quarterback position? When I look at Michigan physically, they're the, the second best looking team in the Big Ten probably. And you just, you don't trust what's going on there. And we don't have a reason to. And now they have a lot of new faces. They have a young coaching staff. They got a new defensive coordinator who's new to the college game. And we're still trying to figure out, is it Jim Harbaugh or is it Josh Gaddis who's really running that offense? And they're going to do it with a quarterback in Cade McNamara who played a little bit last year, but he didn't come into last year as a starter. That'll be interesting. Indiana's a whole different thing in the East where I think that physically they're as good as they've ever looked. And I think they have a coaching staff of teachers. Can Michael Penix Jr. stay healthy? That'd be the big question because they've got a couple of returning All-Americans on defense. they got Ty Freifogel, who cooked Ohio State last year, as one of the best receivers in the Big Ten. Michael Penix Jr. looks really good, and they got a couple running backs who can roll. Now, out of that group, I say Ohio State is still clear-cut in the East. Where it gets interesting is you have these teams in the West that would basically, it would be one shot at Ohio State, and that would be in the Big Ten championship game. You've got Wisconsin, who Graham Mertz, I thought, look really solid. I'm excited to see what he do, he can do. Running back room is a little bit down. Offensive line is great. Tight ends are great. More offensive skill at wide receiver than I've seen in a long time. Defense is going to be really good. Then you've got an Iowa team that has some youth to it, but they've got probably the best offensive lineman in America, one of the top running backs, a quarterback who's returning. Do you think that they can make a run? 
But Minnesota becomes a really interesting one because you got Tanner Morgan at quarterback, who I believe to be the second best quarterback in the Big Ten in 2019 behind Justin Fields. You've got Muhammad Ibrahim at running back, the returning Big Ten running back of the year. You've got all five offensive linemen are returning starters. You've got some new skill over there at wide receiver. And then on defense, they had like nine freshmen at one point starting on defense last year that weren't supposed to play. They've got 10 returning starters on that unit. And all those guys are battle tested and they weren't very good. So, you know, they're going to be hungry. And Ohio State starts off with them. But could it be a situation where if if I think the West is going to be a little bit of a mess, but like if a Minnesota could end up winning the West and they get another shot at Ohio State, could that be the one where they make enough plays to win? I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that's where I think the intrigue comes is Ohio State. I think, you know, all they got to do is line up and beat the teams in the East. They're very familiar. I think they can do that. Would it be a scenario where somebody in the West in one game against Ohio State can give them their best shot and beat them in a Big Ten championship game? The man that knows his Big Ten football there, that was awesome. Uh, Joshua Perry, he is the host of Glory Days podcast. It is available iTunes, Apple, uh, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. I actually, I'm going to do radio this tonight. I got a long drive in, well, 40-minute drive in, so I got episode one lined up for the evening. Uh, Thank you, man. At some point, we'll have to have you on again to talk a little more actual football, but the stories were incredible. Thank you for the time. Truly appreciate it. No, I appreciate you having me. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.